0: Welcome to Be With Champions, I'm your host Greg Bennett and today I have a wonderful chat with Johnny Brownlee. We discuss Johnny's rise to the top of the world of triathlon alongside his brother Alistair Brownlee and Johnny shares the importance of his family and, and just his family time and, and how his mum and dad instilled in him the belief that if he tries as hard as he can, he will achieve, whether that be in sport or in his studies. Johnny describes himself as almost obsessive compulsive he needs to feel like he's achieved something every day to to go to bed feeling good about himself and he shares his process and his journey to the 2012 london olympics and and then the highs and lows of 2016 where he won silver at the rio olympics and then with the world title on the line collapsed in cozumel to finish second and was carried across the line by his brother so many stories and incredible takeaways in this one quick bit of housekeeping Please share this episode and this show. That'd be doing a huge favor. Uh, to i I'm loving all the feedback, so please keep it coming on, on all my social media channels. That's Instagram, I'm Greg Bennett World. Twitter, I'm Greg Bennett One. Or even just reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. I really appreciate those and I do read them. And finally, you can go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media for all the time st- stamps, uh, show notes, coupon codes, links. Enjoy this one, guys. And remember... Success comes to those who just endure one moment longer. If you're enjoying the show, you can support by supporting the show's sponsors. All of these products I'm using regularly. You see, these past few months, I've become even more conscious about my metabolic health, my nutrition, supplementation, movement, sleep and recovery, and and social interaction. And I found the support for my metabolic health with these sponsors, Athletic Greens, Hyperice, and Continua G. Athletic Greens is a green drink source from Whole Foods that actually tastes great. It's delivered straight to your door, and it's highly absorbable powder, which takes seconds to mix with water, so there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery and probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It's NSF certified for sport, no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, and no funny additives. Honestly... I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. A number of my guests that I've had on the show take Athletic Greens regularly, including Timothy O'Donnell, Miranda Carfrey, Tim Don, and Sebastian Kinlay, amongst others. There's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packets with your first purchase a $79 added value, and get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, with two kids and a business to run, time is limited. In the past, when I was a professional athlete with no kids, I'd line up the massages throughout the week to help with recovery and those niggling injuries. But now, I only use the various recovery tools from Hyperice. They work, they're easy to use, and they're time efficient. My go-to is the Vault, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring Quiet Glide technology. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and Normatec compression systems help you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. With Christmas fast approaching, yes, it's almost here, HyperIce products make the perfect gift for anybody in your life that you want to help support, get them, and keep them moving. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com, and use code GREG10 for 10% off. Finally, you're not going to believe this, but I have a new sponsor that doesn't sell anything, they just want to educate. It's called theglutathionreporter.com. That's theglutathionreporter.com. You can find them in my show notes. Why are they doing this? Well, it appears that medical doctors, scientists, college professors are sticklers for accurate information. (laughs) And instead of complaining or getting into Twitter battles, these guys just build a website to reach out and teach people everything you want to know about glutathione. The reason I'm interested, and this is important, is that most consumers are wasting time and money on dietary supplements that don't work. And the best way to prevent this is to do your homework, form your own opinion, and make more informed decisions. So go to theglutathionreporter.com. I also have a website address for those listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, that the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione. And the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners, this website address, is that, you see, the scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished something absolutely mind-blowing. And you need to go check it out. You can check it out at continualg.com. That's continualg.com, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. You can also see that in my show notes, but check it out and let them know I told you about it. An interesting side note to glutathione, in episode 36, when I had Dr. Mansu read my DNA and genetics report, he mentioned that the one common area he found with all the world's best endurance athletes he'd tested, they all had a great ability to produce glutathione. I'll leave you with that little tidbit. All right, today's guest is one of the greatest triathletes of all time. His resume is just truly remarkable. Olympic bronze medalist at his home Olympics in London in 2012, then Olympic silver medalist in Rio in 2016. And combine that with his 2012 World Championship title, his 2010 and 2011 Sprint World titles and three World Championships silver medals and Commonwealth Games silver medal and his consistent podiums for over a decade just truly makes him one of the greatest. What makes this man's story even more compelling is that he shared his process and his journey with his older brother. Never before have we seen two brothers work together and just dominate world sport. I, for one, I'm just a huge fan. I've watched this man race and change the landscape of professional triathlon for many years. So it's an absolute honor and privilege to have him join me for a chat. Welcome and thank you for joining me on Be we Champions, Johnny Brownlee. How are you, mate?
1: i'm great thank you thank you very much for that it's quite a big build-up so uh thank you (laughs) thanks for having me
0: oh mate i like it's an honor mate it's uh you know i've watched you like i just said for this past 10 to 15 years just just come onto the the world of triathlon um both yourself and your brother and gomez you know i've talked about on this show before basically pushed me and all the other old guys out of the sport in a real hurry um and I, I'll never forget, you know, when we were racing Alistair Brownlee, and all of a sudden there were whispers that there was a younger brother that was even more capable, and he was coming. And uh, and then you did—you didn't let us down, and you came onto the world stage in, gosh, in a real hurry. There was nothing about you that was slow.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, um, I was trying to think before I came on the podcast. Um, we didn't actually race, get, race against each other that much, did we? Um, I was—I actually don't know that we did was in madrid in 2010 um and i didn't do i didn't do very well. oh no i did london actually so in 2009 that was my first uh world series and then um a couple that uh, after that but i didn't really start properly in the world series until i guess summer of 2010
0: yeah i think yourself vincent lewis mario Mola, we're, um I think Richard Murray all of you guys we kind of I just missed racing a lot of you guys and I was very thankful for that um yeah. because there was this there was this real group that came through that you changed the level it really was quite incredible how you guys just took it all to another level and you know and you've continued to to keep pushing it over this last 10 years
1: Yeah well yeah thank you and um, I think Alistair and Javier really kind of moved it on and I kind of followed a little bit um I remember obviously growing up, um, I started triathlon when I was very, very young, so I like to think, especially in the kind of European world, we were one of the first triathletes to come through, It actually been full triathlete since we well, were eight years old. Um, you know, I swam, I ran, I cycled, but I wanted to be a triathlete since I was about eight years old, um, so triathlon's kind of always been a part of me and uh I'm sure we'll come and talk about this more, but um, having Alistair as an older brother helps massively. Um, seeing him uh, get his Great Britain kit for the first time was absolutely massive for me. I still remember when he was about 14 and I was about 12 and he qualified for Great Britain for the first time and he came back with his kit and there was me thinking, wow, you know, that's pretty impressive. If my brother can do that, I can do that as well. And also a massive moment for me was actually when Alistair went to Beijing in 2008. Um, his uh, first Olympic games, and uh, I went out to watch him because I was part of this um, Olympic Ambition program. It was called where Great Britain athletes got the chance to go out and kind of watch the Olympics and, and feel and be part of it a little bit. Um, and I was in the stand watching Alistair, and they actually at the time Alistair was leading to about four kilometers to go on the run, or four or five. And I'm I sat there thinking he can't win. Um, um, my brother can't be Olympic medalist. If he becomes Olympic medalist, then it's actually a bit of a letdown, <laughs> um, <laughs> because we were brought up um, during the, you know, the, the, thinking that Olympic medalists were these unbelievably special people from Australia and other different parts of the world, and not British. So that was a big, big moment for me, actually seeing Alistair uh, compete at Olympic Games, and then that made me believe I could do the same as well. I love that he can't win because he's he's my brother and he's not somebody special. It's like
0: I I can I actually I really appreciate that and I do remember that very clearly. the the 2008 Olympics. I was actually commentating for BBC, so for British television and. Um, and we basically were told, you know, these are the British athletes, you know, that you, we want to focus on, and and we were very excited in the commentary box when, when Alistair was leading until 4k, and he was I can't remember how old he is. How old was he in 2008? He was uh, very young.
1: I'd be 18, so he 20. So in 20 very Le- very yeah. especially in yeah. that heat and um, the hard course. So yeah, it was, it was it was a very very impressive, and I never thought he'd get close to, to, to being there. Um, I was just out there to watch him and experience it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's amazing. I love that whole story. I mean, you 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 mentioned you know you started triathloning, you know when you were eight years old. Which for guys like myself, you know that basically we all started as either runners or swimmers or bikers because it wasn't a sport when we started. It was it was very very grassroots. If it was, and um, you know we were watching sort of Ironman Kona and stuff in the eighties and thought, oh, this could be interesting. And so we kind of transferred over to the sport of triathlon, but take me back a little bit to those very early days um and i guess your family life and you know finding that passion for being outside and and doing endurance sport where did that come from
1: yes yeah, so if i take you back um, a long time ago now um my mum uh, used to swim um not competitive um, level you're not for great britain anything but club level um Um, My parents are both doctors, so they kind of went down that career rather than a sporting career. But my mum used to swim. Um, My granddad, so my mum's dad, was a swimming coach as well at the swimming club. So swimming was kind of all part of our blood, really. And my mum encouraged us to swim from quite early, early age. to the local swim squad, uh, which is just um, Airborough, which is a small swim squad. Then you become part of the City of Leeds swim squad. So I was swimming from a a young age, and um, I I enjoyed swimming. I enjoyed the competitive side of it. Um, I enjoyed um, training hard and getting medals and pushing myself against my friends. Um, And I enjoyed enjoyed the training bit of it. And my dad used to run, so we used to run as well. And um, I went to a school which had a great running club, which is pretty unusual, really, Um, that our school was actually its own running club. And we had some amazing runners who came through the school. Um, Richard Neruka, um, it went to the marathon for Great Britain um, in, in Barcelona and came 4th or 5th, went to our school. And so we went to a school which kind of had a, a history of, of running. So I used to swim either before school or after school, run at lunchtime because there used to be a running squad, and then cycle to school as well. Um, so we're kind of on this ready-made triathlon program um, and I actually used to cycle to school because it was the quickest way to get to school. Um, our school was quite, quite a long way away. We went to a private school. Um, so from the age of, I guess, 12, uh, I used to cycle to school, which was 45 minutes um, along the canal towpath because it was actually quicker than catching a school bus. Um, I could actually stay in bed longer. Um, <laughs> so that was one way of getting my training done. Um, but I think what's actually more important than all of that is what my parents did. Um, taught us um they taught us to try hard at things and you can achieve anything as long as you try hard um so that was school work as well as uh, training um and another thing that our parents really really taught us was um, um just the love of being outside so we went on we went on holidays where we'd walk for four or five hours as just part of the holiday and you know um, we just spent time outside. So our parents taught us just to love being outside and love being active. Um, but yeah, so I was swimming throughout the swim squad. Obviously, um, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, I wanted to be a triathlete. And um, I actually started triathlon because um, my uncle was doing it and it was a cool sport to do. But I actually carried on playing all sports. I played um, football. I played rugby. I was actually rugby captain at school. Um, I was actually cricket captain at school as well. I'm not quite sure why, because I was a terrible cricket player. But um, <laughs> um, and then um, one by one, the sports fell away, and then normally for kind of practical reasons. So, you know, when I was 11, I'd be trying to play football on a Saturday uh, morning and do cross country races, and then play um, um, rugby on a Sunday morning or something. And then one by one, I couldn't fit them all in. And I was better at running. I got too small, so I couldn't play football. Uh, um, Um, rugby anymore so um, I started running more and then I guess by the time I was 14 um, I really wanted um, to commit to endurance sport because that's when I realized that I was best at that and um, that's when I really really committed to it from the age of yeah 13 14 all the way through.
0: It's truly amazing I think you know both yourself and your brother Alistair just I think what really sets you guys apart is this there seems to be this real desire this desperation to to punish yourselves to challenge yourselves every time you hop on a start line it's not about it doesn't seem like it's just about winning or podium or whatever it is it's about how hard can i go i mean do you take pleasure kind of putting yourself on the knife's
1: edge and just kind of holding it there Uh, well there's different types of kind of suffering isn't there there's a there's a suffering when you're suffering least out of everyone, and everyone else is hurting. <laughs> and that's the great kind of suffering. That's the suffering <laughs> that everyone likes when you look at it and you think that guy's hurting a lot more than me. And the suffering when you those times are good when in reps and that kind of thing. And that's the suffering that I enjoy. If I'm honest, I don't think anyone really enjoys that suffering uh, when it's not going so well or your training session. And yeah. every time you're getting a split, you're like, I can't believe it's that slow. And why is it hurting so much? So I don't, I wouldn't say enjoy that suffering. What I really, really enjoy is a challenge of achieving something. I'm, I'm a bit one of these kind of weird people who has got to achieve something every day, um, and this whole lockdown period has actually been really interesting with that because um, obviously um, COVID is a big, big topic and came. Um, it all started uh, in the UK and we got locked down in March time and we pretty much knew that we weren't really going to have much of a season this year. Um, but in many ways, that didn't actually really bother me in the fact that um, I could still get out there and train. And one of the reasons why I could definitely get out there and train is because I actually really enjoy waking up in the morning, setting a plan and achieving it. So even when I'm on my off season and having a couple of weeks easy, I still have to achieve something, whether that's tidy my garage, I don't know, clean the kitchen cupboards or or something like that, I still have to do something. Um, So I think for me, what I absolutely love about triathlon art is about setting yourself a goal and achieving it and getting to the end of the day and going, wow, I really, really have achieved something today. Mm.
0: Is it almost like there's almost sounds like there's a little bit of obsessive compulsiveness where it's, you you, you don't feel fulfilled going to bed at night unless you've can sort of tick a a number of boxes. Would you say that's kind of it?
1: Yeah, that's definitely it. I think, athletes it's all a scale isn't it if it's kind of obsessive uh, compulsive achievers or whatever you want to call it um and I think it's a scale And I think I am towards uh, one side of it where I definitely have to choose from every day and if I don't I feel like I've let myself down um and I think my parents definitely taught me that you know I remember going on holidays uh and, and with my parents and if we wanted to go to the local theme park or something like that we had to earn it so we had to do maths books and things like that to go and we could go to the theme park or we'd have to do a challenge like swim a certain 20 lengths of the pool or something and then we could go and have some fun for the day um so i think my parents definitely taught me that um that you uh, if you want to do something you have to earn it and you have to achieve something and i've really, really enjoyed that and it, it means that when you actually do that you feel far better because you've earned it Do
0: do you ever, I mean, struggle with anxiety because of that? And I don't mean struggle with anxiety almost as a negative. I think anxiety is a great fuel for getting things done. Um, But do you ever feel a little bit, you know, with injuries or anything like that? Do you sometimes feel like I'm trying to get things done, but I can't? Is there that anxiousness that comes with that?
1: Um, When you get injured, definitely. And um, because you're sat at home and you can't achieve what you want to achieve, I then set my goals a bit differently. I remember when I got my stress fracture in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a femoral, I was absolutely flying at the start of the year. I'd won a few World Series. I was favourite to come to become world champion. Um, mm-hmm. I was in a former my life and then I got a femoral stress fracture and bang, that's it. You kind of go from doing thirty-five hours of training a week to doing absolutely nothing and sat down in your crutches. Um and then I, I decided, right, I'm gonna be the best injured athlete in the world. So that involved Uh, eating the right food, um, sitting down for the right amount of time and doing my rehab absolutely perfectly. So I think I'm quite good at at setting other goals. Um, Mm. My career has been a kind of, well, not splitting two, it's not as simple as that, but one of my proudest achievements in my career is actually, I I can't remember the exact dates, but between kind of August 2010 and May 2014 I was on the podium of every single race that I, that I did so whether that was French Grand Prix World Series World Cup local British race I was on the podium and I think it got to about 45 podiums in a row um wow. which is actually my proudest achievement um because I think as you know and all triathletes know it's a it's a tough sport to keep on doing well in because Races go differently, crashes, punches, anything. So I think I had a lot of luck in those periods, but a lot of, a lot of consistency. Um, and then after that, obviously, the last few years, I've been uh, struggling to get on the podium. So um, it's been a tough few years, but um, hopefully I, I'm, I'm starting to come good again now. <laughs>
0: well I mean you've just summed up I mean that 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 period that you described I've got it in front of me here and it's just and like I mentioned in the introduction I've got the the triathlon.org but there's also like you said the French Grand Prix and the races back in Britain I mean we're not just talking you know little weekend races here we're talking obviously the Olympic Games where you got the bronze it's you're on the podium every single time for 45 races over four or five years it really is a insane when we're talking about the men that you're racing during that period as well where we're talking obviously your brother and Javier Gomez and you know the Mario Molas are coming on onto the scene and Vincent Lewis and, and a whole bunch of other guys that are just constantly attacking and I think a lot of it is the way that you've raced that aggressive style of never sitting back it's like it seems to me you guys the gun goes and it's go as hard as you can for the hour 45 or whatever the distance, 50 minutes if it's a sprint race, with absolutely zero let up. It's like you almost – is this true? I'm putting words where I probably shouldn't, but basically is it almost you wouldn't feel good about yourself if you felt like you let up at any point in a race?
1: Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think our tactics were pretty – well, simple in a way, is that you would swim near the front, and that could be as hard or as easy as it needed to be, but you want it to be in the front. Mm. You get on the bike and then you just – drill the first 5k um, without even looking around and then we assessed what, what was going on and back in those days I, um, I had the confidence that if we got away in a small group brilliant i'd get a podium if we got caught and it came down to a real fast run i'd still get a podium and i kind of had that that confidence um and like i said that's actually my, my proudest and um, i preferred a race that was a real pure hard race i always felt more satisfied when it was a race when you swam well, you biked really hard and you ran really hard as well and um, mm-hmm. my, actual, my proudest race of my career uh, performance-wise was racing in Gold Coast in 2015, actually two weeks before I got my stress fracture, which probably shows why I got my stress fracture but um, um, I swam, uh, myself and Richard Varga came out of the, the water and we basically biked the whole uh, bike with me, Varga and two Russians and then I actually would have had the fastest run after being away in the in the front pack um, with Marion Moller chasing me down. Um, and I won that race. And um, we worked incredibly hard on the bike. And, and it came away with only about, only about a 20-second lead off the bike. And mm-hmm. I still managed to hold on on the run. And that was my proudest race because I was an all-round triathlete. And I always wanted to be an all-round triathlete who um, was at the front of the swim. And then it was in my control. I definitely didn't want to be one of these athletes who knew they were going to give away a minute or 90 seconds on the swim and then it's out of their control, it was a lot easier for me if I knew that from that start line it was in my control as much as it possibly could be.
0: I, I really, I, I think you've surmised yourself very well there. I think you and your brother Alistair are complete triathletes. There really isn't any area of weakness and that's very, very difficult for somebody else to train to try and beat. It's like, well, where do I get them? I mean, you mentioned the Gold Coast. You ran a a sub-30-minute 10K there on an accurate, fairly hot race, um, you know, 29-49 I think I've got in front of me here. I mean, these performances are unbelievable, and, and that's where I think there's so many athletes still shaking their heads going, well, how do we beat the Brownlee brothers? And it became a real – I remember I was even thinking about going, oh, 2012, London Olympics. Maybe I'll go for another Olympics, and I think it was either 2010 – I think it was 2010, I I decided to go do, you know, a World Series race Uh, or maybe it was 2011. And I left with with my tail between my legs just going, there's Gomez, who I knew well and had lived and trained with in Australia. And I was like, I I really don't know how to beat him. And then there's two Brownlee brothers. I'm like, the podium at the Olympics is over i don't i don't even understand how anybody kind of in their right my 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 self-belief went completely because of that dominance that the three of you had what was interesting is you were only 22 <laughs> at the london olympics i mean no disrespect but you were still somewhat of a, a of a kid and here you are winning the world series in the same year as uh you know, that performance that you did at London Olympics. I actually want to, I'm really excited about talking about London and I was going to do it later in the show, but I'm too excited about it. So we'll talk about it now. <laughs> London Olympics, You, like I said, you're 22. The Brownlee brothers are uh, plastered all over Britain. You guys uh, talked about as going to both medal, all the pressures on your shoulders. Take me through, okay, let's wind it back. Take me through the qualifying and making sure you could get there to have a start, and then take me through to the race the morning of and everything in between.
1: Yeah, well, um, London 2012. I could probably talk about London 2012 for hours. Well, let's do it. <laughs> amazing day. And uh, firstly, when we were incredibly fortunate to have a home Olympics, um, being able to do a home Olympics. You know, lots of athletes have been to many and haven't had one, and I realised that. And it was great for the sport, and it was great for us. But um, so, qualification process. I really had absolutely no idea that i was going to qualify um i remember um um, london getting awarded the olympics when i was at school and um it was either london or paris and i'm thinking oh wow london that's quite cool that london's got olympics but it's nothing means nothing for me um that's for older athletes who have been bothered about that and then i didn't think i had any chance until i raced actually in 2010 in in london on the on the test well kind of test event course and i uh came second slash third because Alistair had his heat exhaustion. So Alistair was in the in the, in the tent getting his um mm. proof from heat exhaustion and I come second in my in my first podium in World Series. So I was overshadowed by Alistair once again. Um and then I actually thought, wow, you know maybe I've got a chance of qualifying for this next year. So 2011 came along and I went to Madrid, did very, very well. Um and then I thought, right, definitely I got a chance of qualifying for the Olympics. We went to Altitude um before the test event and the test event came around and um Alistair got away in a breakaway. and before the race Alistair and myself had had an agreement that if if one of us went away the other one wouldn't do any work um and the other one at the front would stop working when the gap got to about a minute um it got to about a minute and Alistair decided to stop working so I knew that two places were taken up there and we had to come to qualify for Olympics, we had to podium in London in the test event, and we had to qualify in the grand final in Beijing. So I knew in the test event that the Brukankov and Alistair were have taken those two spots, since two spots. So it was a run for the for the last spot, and I ran really well in that race and came third and thought, wow, okay, that's that's half of the the qualification done. Gosh, um, it was it was a tough selection policy. But, oh my gosh. <laughs> It's good. It's good to have tough ones because um the um, if you deserve to qualify, then you qualify. Um, mm. And the worst thing is if you set like a, an easy bar and someone sneaks in, and then your best athletes have missed out because they crashed or something. Um, and we actually spoke to Simon Whitfield. I remember once about Olympic selection, and he just said, "Don't worry about Olympic selection. Um, if you're good enough, you'll qualify." Um, and that's actually really, really good advice from Simon. He just. And after that, I kind of took that and thought, right, just get yourself good enough. And if you're good enough to win a medal in the Olympics, you're going to qualify anyway, so you'll be fine. Uh, That's what I told myself anyway. Um, um, So then uh, Alistair had won the test event, I'd come third. um, And then we went to Beijing, which was a very strange grand final because it was on the old Olympic course. Um, And um, everyone was a bit tired at the end of the year because everyone had focused on the test event, really. And I came um, again third in that. I got outsprinted by Sven Riedra the last little bit, but that was enough to um, qualify my spot. Um, I went away on holiday after that year, um, got the phone call to say that I qualified for the Olympics. Um, my first Olympics, I was obviously unbelievably proud, but then mm. straight away thought about how I was going to prepare for, for next year um luckily we'd kind of done a trial the year before um of what we're going to do so we knew exactly what that was going to involve going to altitude and sam ritz for five weeks before coming down and the race in london um i was like i keep saying it, it's my first olympics and it's absolutely incredible going to olympic games um but there being been a home olympics it, it ramped up the pressure uh a thousand times more um and now I've experienced two different Olympics. I kind of realized that, you know, after qualifying a year out, we were on the front of phone books in the UK and, you know, they were on everyone's doorstep in in the whole of the country. There's, there's, everyone got a phone book with a picture of us on the front because um, it's sponsored by BT at the time. Um, we were on adverts for BT and Adidas and things like that. And, um, you know, you're part of days of 100 days to go to the Olympics. Our local pool had a countdown clock, which counted down every single second to Olympics. So, Every time I went for a swim, um, you know, another hour ticked down to Olympics, and it was all in front of you. Um, so at the same time, I was trying to keep everything as normal as I possibly could, but was surrounded by this kind of world of um, Olympic hysteria. And um, it was absolutely amazing to be part of, but it was hard to keep things normal. So I raced at the start of the year. Um, Alistair was actually out injured because he'd torn his Achilles. Um and it was left to me to go and do a bit of racing around the world. But all my races went anywhere really else, well, so I was happy. And actually that period up to in that in twenty twelve, I pretty much didn't miss a minute of training that whole year. I think everything had gone very, very well. No injuries, no illness, or anything. Um so I was very, very fortunate. And I think that actually took a lot of the the kind of anxiousness away from me because I knew that I was very well um prepared for it. So we went to St. uh with Alistair Stu Hayes to help us out and uh, Varga and some training partners and our team. And we trained very, very well in Samaritz. Everything went perfect. So we came back from Samaritz and decided uh, to stay at home. And we actually spent uh, two weeks at home before the Olympics because uh, we had a few, a few weeks to go before our race. Um, we had an opening ceremony at home where we all got dressed in our opening ceremony gear and actually ate fish and chips from a local fish and chip shop. Um, while the ceremony was going on and um, that was our experience of the opening ceremony uh, did a few sessions at home um, which was quite tough because everywhere you went people um, reminded you about the olympics coming up and you know good luck and hope you hope you do well and um, all the, the usual things and you couldn't go anywhere without people ra- reminding you about that um, and then we finally caught the train down to london um, to compete the Olympics. And we actually only did that three days before. And we arrived on a Saturday morning, which was Super Saturday, where Mo Farah and Greg Rutherford and Jess Ennis won their medals. Um, and that same same day as the female race. And obviously, that hadn't gone as well as a British team had hoped. Um, so we kind of came to this environment where it was a little bit, uh, not, not somber, but um, for Helen, we knew what Helen had been through. And we knew that actually Helen's race on that day was incredible, been you know have seen what she'd been through with injuries mm. um so but i was really pleased to be there and then we were looking forward to racing and race day itself came along uh did my normal thing normal routine and um we've been in the same hotel we've been in the year before same trip to the to the race venue as we had done before and um was really, really got there ready to race and i think we did a really good job of being fit but at the same time keeping everything as normal as possible
0: Hmm. I think I mean that was very evident. I I think the pressure that you guys had on yourselves and I can imagine everybody saying good luck to you and they mean well, but it's always just like, oh, can I just have a, a little bit of time where I'm not thinking about the Olympics? But and like you said, Helen Jenkins, who I had on this show earlier, you know, had been dealing with her own knee injuries and things like that and really hadn't done any running and still managed to come fifth at in the women's race at the Olympics.
1: Um, I think she was one of the performances of the whole the whole Olympics, you know, because uh, we saw what she'd been through and she really hadn't done much running. <laughs> so yeah. to come for the Olympics was incredible.
0: Now take me through the race because the race itself, it was, I mean, for those that haven't done Olympics and that kind of thing, it often does just feel once you're in it, okay, it's another World Series, it's another race. I mean, this one was different in the sense the crowds were phenomenal and loud, um, but did it feel much like another race?
1: um so yes and no um obviously the build-up had meant it didn't feel like another race and i remember actually a couple of things so the day before we went to swim at the local pool where a few of the athletes are swimming and i told myself that um everyone would turn up at olympics looking a lot fitter and looking a lot stronger and they're going to be faster than they were before and i remember seeing a few of the athletes swimming and thinking oh they're still swimming the same as they were before so it really <laughs> changed um so and then I, another thing. So like I said before, we'd gone, we'd stayed in the same hotel before, um, probably eating the same breakfast that I had uh, the year before, and we rode um, to the course um, across Hyde Park. And the way we went into Hyde Park was um, um, a kind of strange way um, around the back. And at this point, there was no crowd at all. And I was thinking, oh, I hope people turn up to this race. I've told everyone it's give me a good race. Um, <laughs> the crowd's going to be amazing. Um, the army greeted us there because the British army were there doing the check-in, and I remember the French guys in front of us were taking all their bottles out, their bags, and going through the, the airport like scanners. Like, like what happens? And the British army saw us guys and said, "Guys, walk straight through. You're British. You're fine. <laughs> uh, <so laughs> it's a home advantage and all that." Um, yeah. And then uh, you go to the athlete round, lounge. And you see the same faces and the same coaches, and it did feel like normal. But then uh Alice and myself um went on the bike course for a little warm up and we we rode onto ten meters of the course, and the crowd went crazy and that 's when I thought, "Wow, this day is going to be incredible um, and we just they can only warm up and part of the course, but there was you know ten, fifteen deep people in trees scrambling for position. And the noise was incredible. And I thought, this is going to be the best day that I'll ever compete in a triathlon. And I, my mindset kind of changed a little bit there. And I thought, right, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to enjoy this day. Um, because if I don't enjoy this day, I'm going to look back in a few years to come and go, Why well, didn't enjoy that day. That's meant to be the best triathlon in the world. Um, and it was an amazing day. So the actual race itself, um, you'd already chosen it your Starting position before the race, like you do at race briefing. Um, I run the start line next to Alistair, and I just said to him, Let's not mess this up. Um, <laughs> so we had to, you know, got in, and we had a pretty reasonable start. Um, the swim was one of the fastest swims I've ever done. Um, I, we got out with a small group of us, and we uh rode what I thought was really really hard in the first few laps, and the crowd was going. Mental the whole way around, and then I came past the penalty board for the second lap, I think. And I looked at it and I saw there's a number that was close to my number on the penalty board, thinking, oh, Alistair, what have you done? I told you not to get a penalty, Alistair. What Alistair,
0: done? what have you done?
1: Yeah. Um, and I looked at my arm, thought, oh no. <laughs> me. Um, and I kind of went into a panic mode then because I didn't want to lose an Olympic medal because of penalty. I'd never got a penalty before, i never got a penalty since. But basically, uh, my excuse is um, when you go to the Olympics, everything's bigger. So the mountain line was bigger. (laughs) And I didn't actually know you had to be past the mountain line. I thought just past the start of the mountain line. So I basically jumped on the bike a little bit too early and that's where I got the penalty. Um, But in many ways, it actually simplified it because it meant I just had to run really hard. Um, And it just meant that I just would get out of transition and run as hard as I could. Um, But the bike itself... Was we rode really hard for the first bit and then got cut up by the group behind us, um, and then Stu did a really good job of controlling it. Uh, but my memory of the whole bike course was the crowd and not being able to talk to Alistair the whole way round, pretty much because of the crowd being too loud. Um, apart from a small section on the bridge um, that was too, it wasn't safe enough to hold too many people, so there wasn't a the crowd weren't allowed on there. Um, and we started running, and Alistair, myself, and Javier got away pretty early and uh, that actually made it um, simplified it for me because I got my 15 seconds back pretty early. Um, and it was, it was still, I think one of the fastest runs has ever been in the sport. I can't remember exact figures, but I think we went through 5k in fourteen ten or something and um, thinking this is really, really fast. Um, <laughs> uh, and I took my penalty at the right time, just about to get, just starting to really, really fall off the back. And then, um, came out of the penalty box with a good still 10, 15 seconds lead. So ran a hard as could on that on that last lap um, to get a bronze medal. And, um, yeah, one of the amazing things actually about the Olympics was running around and being able to pick out old school teachers' voices who had come to watch me. Um, even though there was 500,000, a million people in Hyde Park, just being able to pick out those old those old school teachers and going, wow, that's Mr. Lyons who's teach me PE or... That's, that's mr Kingham, who used to be the cross-country teacher and still been able to remember their voices when i was racing and it's an amazing memory
0: just a quick mini break before we get back to the show i just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash greg sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of 79 out of value that's athleticgreens.com forward slash greg It's amazing the, the the cognitive clarity that you had, you know, like even though it's deafening noise, even though there's this, you know, I've got a 15-second penalty, all these things that can be going through your head, but you're still aware of those around you. I mean, the, the image that you've painted is that one that I can only think of the Beatles, oh. who you sound very much like. Um, but but it's kind of the, there's, there's people just desperate to see the Brownlee brothers do what they do best. I mean, it's it's an incredible image. And, and like you said, to have the maturity when you were 22, to be able to say, hey, this could be the greatest, you know, triathlon experience of my life. Make sure you take it in. I, I think that's I, – I think a lot of athletes could have let it go the other way and almost feel like, oh, I'm a bit frozen. You know, the, the self-doubt could have crept in and all sorts of things. But I think the way you took it on is – actually, no, I, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to embrace it. And that, that initial feeling when you got the 15-second the penalty, even then to have the maturity and go, okay, there's just one way to approach this now, and that's just run flat out and open that gap. And when I look at the finishing time, I do see that, you know, Javier Gomez finished uh, 20 seconds in front of you at the end. Does that – do you ever think about what if I didn't get the penalty or you, you think it would have stayed the same?
1: Yeah, I think I would have stayed the same. I think the most honest uh, feeling is immediately after the race and mm-hmm. that was, it made no difference. Um, so, no, as uh, it, days went went on afterwards and people asked me and I thought, oh, you know, maybe 15 seconds penalty along, along the couple of seconds slowing down and a couple of seconds speeding back up again is about 20 seconds. But no, after the race, I, um, I thought it wouldn't make any difference and I think um, that was a very, very fair podium and looking at the... The years before, a months before of the, of the uh, you know, how people done. It was very, very nice to share that podium with Javier as well because um, I think he deserved it after what he'd uh, been through in, in Beijing as well. So absolutely not. I think that would have been the result, whatever penalty or not. Um, mm-hmm. but I think in, in the whole build up thing, I don't know if it's just mentality or the age at the time of that kind of innocence of youth. Is it that I've got more Olympics to come, or the fact that having Alistair next to me helped because I could go. All the pressure's on you, mate. <laughs> in fact, yeah, thankfully, I'm not, I'm not in your situation um, yeah. because everyone's expecting you, you to win and me to maybe podium. Um, yeah. There was actually a fact as well that I kept in my head that I think up till Beijing, no, I'm sorry, up till Rio, everyone who'd come bronze medal in the test event had got a bronze medal in the Olympics. So um, I told myself that it was fate. I'd got a bronze medal in a test event, so I was going to get a bronze medal in Olympics, whatever. Uh, Is that right? Is that, was, that right? I didn't uh, actually know that statistic. Yeah, that was right until uh, Tokyo, uh, until um, Rio. Uh, Rio. Um, when the bronze medal in the test event, I don't actually know who it went to because I wasn't there. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, yeah, I can't actually remember that either. I know Gomez won the test event, but I can't
1: remember yeah, who got bronze. Yeah, third. So maybe Richard Vincent Murray second, so maybe uh, Richard Murray ran through to third um and he got
0: he ended up getting fourth at the Olympics behind uh, Henry schumann oh uh, yeah <laughs> so i mean we, we we've talked about your you, your brother a bit uh, and it often you guys often do get kind of flung into the same conversation um you know do you i mean there's obviously tremendous positives um having a training buddy like you said he can take some of the pressure some of the heat and the expectations is there ever a feeling like hang on guys um you know i'm my own man as well and i have my own career do you ever feel there's a little bit of a shadow from alistair
1: uh no i don't i think one of that she as well things i'm really proud of is i can genuinely say that throughout my career um there's been no jealousy so in london when he won and i was bronze there was never any kind of thing of oh that should have been me or that could have been me. And I don't know uh, why that is really. Um, I obviously look up to him and I really realize uh, that if it wasn't for him, I'd, I wouldn't be where I was. And that's not, not even because of the training side of just training with him. It was the fact that um, I'm a much more of a kind of a shy person who does what they're told, whereas Alice is a much more of a person who this is the way I'm going to do it and this is the right way. And um I think one of the most revolutionary thing that Alistair did was the way he trained of uh, one how hard he trained and number of hours he trained and you know we grew up through British trial from programmes where that wasn't uh, that was seen as training too much and Alistair was like, No, 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 I'm I'm training right, I'll show you and then I kinda copied him. Um whereas if that was me, I wouldn't have done that because I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that. Um and I wouldn't have the confidence to realise that I could do that well if I hadn't seen him do it. Um but I've I've really, really enjoyed uh being on my two Olympic start lines with him and going through the whole process together and hopefully we can do it a third time. But um no, there that, that hasn't been. It. I think it was more growing up if there was, and that was um you know, when Alistair um won the World Junior Championships, um, a couple of years later I actually came second at the World Juniors, um Marion Moller beat me and when alistair did it it was like a, you know, my parents were like oh wow World junior Championship, that's amazing and when i came along it was kind of expected not expected so that's a mm-hmm. wrong word but it wasn't like wow that was amazing it was just mm-hmm. oh, alistair's kind of already done that so it's not <laughs> it's not kind of super special and there's a little so maybe a little bit growing up but then as i got older no i've 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 really really enjoyed uh competing with him and when i uh, uh, do get beaten by him i hold my hands up and go I can't do any better. You know, London, I don't think I could have done anything, any different um, in the lead up or the race, itself. set apart from get a penalty, but when it changed anything um, to beat him, you know, you get some days where you get beaten by the better person. You've got to hold your hands up and go, well, wow, fair play, shake your hands and say, you're better than me on that day. Um, of course. That, that's how it's always been. And um, no, there's been um, no resentment uh, from, uh, towards him really. And like I said, that's what I'm really proud of.
0: That's really well said, mate. It's a, uh... Fantastic. And, and, look, you've had so many pats on the back yourself, um, you know, from, from your second at World Juniors uh, to to all your incredible accolades that you've had. I mean, and you have you have beaten Alistair. I remember was it was at 2013 Hamburg in that sprint finish. You sprinted around him. Yeah. There's been a few times that you've done that. How's that felt, though?
1: Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> He's always got a reason, though. Um, you know, he, he's not feeling great or uh, he's a bit ill. There's always been some kind of reason. Um, I, I, I've I, actually feel that recent, well, in the last few years, I've kind of actually raced better with Alistair not being there. I don't know if that's because I am a different person because when Alistair's there, I go into Michelle a little bit more and think, wow, he, um, he's the one who's going to push the race on. I'll kind of follow Whereas when he's not there, I take responsibility by that and kind of stand up a bit taller and think, right, come on then. Um, but yeah, about I, I beat him um, the couple of weeks after the the uh, the test event in in 2011 um, in London. We went to the World Sprint Championships um, in, um, uh, in Lausanne, and now it's been to him then. Um, so I've been a few times. Actually, that's what I, remember, I meant to say to you. And that's one of the races I raced you. It was in the Sprint Championships in 2010. Uh, like <laughs> was I really in the result? I think yeah. I was so far behind it. The- <laughs> I had to shave my leg and you said you'll never be world champion if, until you shave your legs or something. And <laughs> I'll get out. I would never say that. Or <laughs> <laughs> something. He said something like that, and um, I won that day. I remember it. <laughs> Is that, is that what you've been holding on to for this past 10 years? That's it, that's it. I finally got off my chest. <laughs> and I, I remember that in, uh, in yeah, 2010, because uh, uh, I've actually started shaving my legs in hot races now because apparently it helps you lose heat. But anyway, um, so yeah, uh, I, I remember that. I was a young lad on the start line in 2010 uh
0: yeah you would have been 20 let's 20. see I think I was so far off the back of that I remember that I don't know what I, I finished 25th there you are
1: it's a lovely, <laughs> it was a lovely, lovely uh, place to race but yes yeah, sir so, sorry where were we uh I yeah I Alison in Hamburg in 2013 um and I've beaten him in a, in a few races but um I've definitely not had my best performances with Alistair there um and that's yeah I'm looking to change to um kind of back myself a little bit more um in those races
0: well, you've just hit your your golden thirties, as Chris McCormack once told me. The golden thirties is where all the magic happens. But I I'm not sure that went, what that means to someone like yourself with the resume that you already have. But for the rest of us, the golden thirties was when we really started it. it all kind of came together a little bit more for us. But these last few years with with Alistair sort of focusing on the long course, um, did, were you guys able to train a bit, or have you guys kind of done your own thing a little bit more these last few years? And since him. Sort of announcing that he wants to go to Tokyo. Have you guys come back together again?
1: Uh, so yes, we still train together. Um, I guess ninety percent of the time. Yeah, you know, they they we I, I like and I also like high volume anyway. So our training philosophy, for, even for Olympic distance is basically you try and get as many hours as y- in as you can, as long as you protect those key sessions of your key Tuesday morning swims and Tuesday evening runs and your key Thursday bike sessions and your key Saturday morning run sessions around that, you get as many hours in as you can before they start to tail off. So um, I, the kind of um, Olympic distance to half Man wasn't that much different. Um When Alistair started training for Kona, it started to become a little bit different because Alistair would be doing uh, longer rides on a Sunday with more time trial efforts, um, which didn't really work with me being on my road bike because it either turned into a really, really hard ride for me that I'd become yeah. I'd be absolutely um, shattered from. Um it wouldn't really work. So we started to do things a little bit differently and obviously Alistair wouldn't be doing track sessions anymore because for um uh the I'm I'm Man distance you don't obviously need a five, six kilometre track session. So that was different. Um but now um so second part, we have come back to doing everything together again, which has been really, really nice. Um yeah. I did a track session with him um, um yesterday and it was probably the first track session we've done together in a long, long time, in the best part of a, a year or two i can't even remember um wow. i didn't really think of that um and that's not that's not to say i've been on my own you know i've still got some good runners to train with and runners as well triathletes so um yeah but we we haven't been really doing the same thing so i'm looking forward to spend the next few months training again back with alistair um he, he's very very good to train with because he never ever wants to uh take it easy uh as in when they want a hard session or a normal Tuesday attraction shouldn't it? if the coach says, right, it's an easy one, nice relaxed. He still wants to run it pretty hard. Um, and But he's very good at then taking the easy sessions easy. Um, you know, we're very good now at not racing those things and knowing when it when to go easy, when to go hard.
0: Is that a little bit because you've both, I mean, you know, you've these past 10, 15 years, you both had your injuries. You had your, your, your stress fracture and your femur in 2015. And, you know, Alistair's had that Achilles and that left ankle of his – being all sorts of work for him over the years is that a little bit of biomechanics or a little bit of overdoing it or what do you think
1: uh, i think um, a little bit of overdoing it um i think it's some being has been really different so the ones that I've had uh my stress fracture I was definitely just too fit and too lean for too long um I don't think I've ever really got to grips of a whole World Series calendar it's Quite hard, the, the, the new World Series calendar of you start racing in February time, you don't finish to October time. I think I was a lot better when you used to start racing in May time um, and the season you used to finish in September time and staying fit for that shorter period I found a bit easier and it fits a bit better with our kind of winter of it starts getting warmer in April, uh, May time and then you start doing your faster sessions then rather than pushing it for, Feb, for, for a hard race in February. Um, but um, I think what we have learned as we got older is you can still do the hard sessions hard, um, but you don't ever want to go absolutely crazy. You want to hold a little bit back, but then also the easy sessions have got to be done very, very easy. And if you're going for a three, four hour bike ride, you really want to keep them as easy as possible rather than surging up the hills or sprinting up the hills or things like that. So I've definitely learned over the last six, eight months, um, especially through this period of being at home, um, we've actually been able to train consistently, consistently for the first time in ages. That To do that, you keep the hard stuff hard and the easy stuff really, really easy. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, we've talked about obviously Alistair a fair bit. Tell me about the rest of your team and the relationships. You've said you've got all these other training partners. Tell me about your, your coaches and, and obviously your, your family and your, your, there's another – Brownlee brother which we all started to go what? another one but uh, I, mean, I think he's more of a rugby player or something but yeah. tell me about your team and your relationships that you've got back home there
1: Yeah, so uh, we obviously train in Leeds and we've been fortunate to train with amazing amazing training partners and I now um, swim with my old swimming coach um, Cos who I swam with from being 13 to maybe 16 17 years old um, and now I swim with her and we've got a little squad of about eight of us um, who swim. Um, Matt Buckingham is one of our main training partners who um, is a good athlete. Um, Gordon Benson, who went to the Olympics in, in Rio with us. Um, and obviously, Alistair myself. Um, and I, I run with a running squad of some guys who uh, are very, very, very good runners. You know, some guys who are 13, 35k runners and some guys who finish after work and a little bit, a little bit slower. But I'm. Um, uh, they're still always there on a Tuesday night or Saturday morning. Uh, we cycle with local cyclists. Um, one of the guys I cycle with, Tom Pidcock, who's just been signed for Ineos. Um, he is an amazing cross biker, mountain biker. Um, I've seen him come through. He, he lives around the corner. Um, so we always cycle with, them, with those guys. And um, Ian Mitchell is my coach, who we were long term uh, coached by Malcolm Brown, who I met again when I was about 12 years old. He was um, head of sport at the Leeds Beckett University and used to coach runners on an evening, on a Tuesday night and a Saturday morning. Um, then he kind of moved into more of a triathlon role and then he retired. And Ian Mitchell, who had been coached by Malcolm for 20 years and was part of Leeds Beckett, is, uh, was our kind of run coach. Um, so we've got a nice little squad that um, I try and spend as much time at home as possible and train with those guys. And... Um, uh, and that's where my setup is with my physio and my gym coach and all that. And then um, we travel abroad when we when we have to with, with those guys as well. So um, we've got a nice little squad of people. And I think it's actually really, really important, the characters that you meet along the way in sport. And one of the things I've talked about a lot is the running um, teachers who encouraged me to run, the swimming coaches that I met who encouraged me to work hard in the pool, till now the training partners who are there day in, day out. Um, pushing is on um, and always there and cheerful. And that's one of the most important things.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think I've said it numerous times on this show, the importance of building a great team around you. And obviously the better you go, that, team seems to draw to you a little bit more it takes a bit more work when you're kind of just starting out and trying to build your right team but it is amazing that none of us as much as it's an individual sport or an individual life if you like uh can can do it alone and uh it's always seemed to me that you guys are very proud hard tough yorkshire men that are very uh love training in the environment that you're in with the the people around you are are your parents still involved um do they come to many of the races still or is it all kind of like okay they're off to another world championship another olympics off they go
1: uh you know, my parents are definitely still involved um not involved in obviously the, the kind of the sports side but as being been both doctors they're involved in that kind of side if they've ever got any cough or cold or anything um <laughs> but, but most importantly they're there as a support that like they've always been of um don't we were always here for you and um until this recent period of, of, of COVID where actually we're not allowed to go to around to people's houses anymore in Leeds. Um, mm-hmm. I used to go around every Sunday night for dinner with my mum, my, my dad, Alistair, and my grandma. Um, so I was really, really nice. I was definitely a very, very home uh, person. I used to love going around there for dinner. Uh, and that kind of re- reset me because whatever happened in your week, um, you would go home for Sunday dinner and it wouldn't really matter. Um and I, 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 I enjoyed that normality, and um, my parents have always wanted to show that they love me whatever whatever happens. Um, they've done that in strange ways sometimes. Um, um, before Rio, I remember waking up in the morning to a text message from a mum saying, whatever happens, we still love you, um, which I'm not quite sure is a good thing or a bad thing, because I'm, I'm really, really worried. Um, um, and then, obviously, after my heat heat stuff had been through, my heat um, illnesses mm. in in Cosmèl and stuff, I've had texts from my mum after hot races saying whatever happens, is don't hurt yourself. Which I've now told her to not text me anymore about that kind of stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but she's only there because she she cares. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a very family person, and I love spending as much time as possible at, at home. And um, yeah, my parents have been absolutely great. They still come to races, and um, one of the shame shame things about about the COVID situation is they'd actually both well, my mum had retired and my dad. Um, was uh had retired from the kind of hospital work that he does we're actually going to travel to a lot more races they booked a trip to, B- to Bermuda to come to the world series there my mum had just retired the week before <laughs> um, uh-huh. but then obviously COVID hit, um and they couldn't um, all the races stopped so um I think definitely in the future they will try and come to more races because uh the one thing that stopped them was the work stuff so uh, now that's less they'll they'll come to more
0: i i love that you, you it's funny our parents want the very very best for us and sometimes and they want us to be safe and they want us to be well I, i'll never forget i i was winning the sydney world cup back in 99 before you were born i know you were nine years old but and my dad was only i i decided to break away on the run i just attacked at about 1k in very early and then my dad was at about 2k and he yelled out careful son and until that point, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it. I just felt good. And then I'm like, "What have I got to be careful?" But he he meant well, you know. He meant well. It's a bit like your note that your 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 mum sends you. You know, you know, don't do anything too crazy. And I do want to talk about this, the heat issue that both you and Alistair have had your your time with. Um, you know, 2016 probably the most viral video of triathlon ever. Um, take me through that in Cozumel with you know alistair grabbing you and trying to help you get across the line and what was at stake
1: yes yeah, so, um it's actually interesting it's one, normally um in kind of non-triathlon uh interviews and podcasts it's probably one of the first things I get asked um and mm. when i'm on the street um and people have people always say am i you one of those brothers which one are you the one who helped the one who got carried um so i keep telling myself it's good for the sport but yeah what was at stake um we'd had a long year we'd been to um, Rio and obviously performed very well there with silver and um, and gold then I still had a chance of winning the world championship so um, I went to um, Edmonton it was a really really cold race I won there um, racing about six or seven degrees and then flew to Florida to train uh, for Cozumel so got a bit of heat adaptation then uh, was arrived in Cozumel got off the plane and thought wow this place is really hot it was one of those places where you um, you have your breakfast outside, and by the time you walk ten meters and sat down for your breakfast, you're already sweating and you change your t-shirt. Um, so I remember thinking, "This place is hot, okay, but I'm pretty well prepared, I think." Um, and basically, if I won, uh, Mario had to come third um, to still uh, make to still win the world championships. So we thought, right, There's a good chance this is happening. Cozumel is obviously a beautiful place and diving in the water, swimming and seeing dolphins and um, amazing fish during the race. Uh, turning on the swim into the port where we, where the, the swim exit was, I'm thinking this is like a bath in here. This is really hot, but I'll be fine. Um, Alistair did a great job on the bike there to help me. He kept the bike controlled and kept our pack um, quite way ahead of the, 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 the second pack behind um, and it was all going absolutely perfectly um, Alistair, myself and Henry Schumann were running around I was really comfortable I thought after about 5k right let's push this on let's get this race won become world champion great year Could pat myself on the back I think well, double world champion Olympic medalist so it's been a good year um, and uh, so I surged away thinking absolutely fine and then I just remember with about a kilometre to go um, my legs just going a little bit wobbly and thinking, okay, that's a bit weird, but I'll be fine, I can mm. still make it. And the rest of it is a is a massive blur. Mm. I've only got a couple of memories, and that was one of Alistair grabbing me and me thinking, just leave me, please, just leave me. I can't remember Henry running past me, um, and I remember Alistair just throwing me across a line and um, waking up in a on a hostel bed um, with people um, putting ice all over me, trying to calm me down, and just thinking what had happened. And then Alistair throwing a phone at me and my mum just saying, and then picking up and mum screaming at me saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Um, I think, yeah, I think I'm fine, mum. I'm still here. Um, And then going to hospital um, um, straight away. uh, And obviously you do the test and then eventually coming round in my hospital bed, it'd been really, really late going back to the hotel. And I turned my phone on um, and it just crashed straight away. And, shut down and I thought, that's a bit weird. Um, turned it back on again and tweets are coming through from, you know, JK Rowling, Gordon Ramsay and my Twitter went crazy and thought, okay. But I felt a bit embarrassed about the whole thing, if I'm honest, because I should have won that race. If I'd paced it right, I would have won that race. Um, so the actual day was a bit strange. And the next morning I felt really, really ill and um, people wanted me to, uh, in interviews with us. We were invited on the, the James Corden show uh, some America, other American chat shows, um, and I just wanted to get home because I felt embarrassed by the whole situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, but obviously it, then it went out to go viral, and um, uh, I I remember flying back um, through America actually, and sat in the departure lounge and coming on American TV, and just being like, okay, triathlon's on American TV here on the news. This is strange, um, and also keeping my head down. Apart from when I got on a plane, I was trying to get, I was trying to get an upgrade from an um, economy to business class, and I was like, "Hi, it's me," <laughs> <laughs> but um, that didn't work. Um, um, so yeah, and just the whole thing being this kind of trade off between, you know, wow, what I used to do is amazing. Um, it's good for the sport. It shows brotherly love. It's the same side for me, my competitive side thinking. I've only ever been world champion once and that was would have been my second time. I've been really, really upset by not having that, not doing it. It's um, because basically I paced it wrong. Um, so yeah, that's Cosmel, And then came back home to this kind of world of people um, recognising me um, for for being that person who got carried. And, you know, I still cross the street now and uh, people peep out the window, oh, do you need carrying? Are you going to be all right? Or keep on drinking and uh, things like that. So uh, um unfortunately i've had to accept that um for a lot of people i'll be recognized as a guy who kind of collapsed towards the finish line um and i still can't remember now how much of it i can actually remember and how much of it i've been forced to watch back um Mm. so actually my memories have come from me watching it watching it back when i've been on you know tv shows or doing talks or something like that and um yeah it was strange and it went very strange world that we live in that um a lot more goes a lot that that goes viral rather than my good performances, but it is what it is.
0: <laughs> well, I, th- I think um, on your competitive side, I think you've summed it up perfectly. You know, I, I don't think to be embarrassed is fair. I think we make mistakes as athletes or pace things wrong, and, and that 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 happens. But I think the world <laughs> at that point needed to see some love, and, and they saw it, and it makes and it's a feel good story, which we don't get much of these days, and that's why something like that goes viral. I remember watching it, and I was tearing up. You know, it was, it, it was a special moment in sport. It was, a, uh, I remember yelling to Laurie, you've got to come and watch it. You know, it was like, it was, a, uh, and then there was all the debate of what happens, you know, with, you know, Alistair carrying his brother across the line or whatever, um, I just love the fact that he threw you across the line. There was nothing gentle about it. I thought it was hilarious.
1: That's that Alice, little bit. Oh yeah. I think Alice was a bit annoyed about the whole the whole thing. And <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, a lot of what people don't know is that debate actually carried on for a while. At one point, we were going to have to go to court to fight whether we were going to get disqualified or not. Uh, mm. But in the end, it didn't. Uh, it, the ITU decided just to leave it how it was, and uh, it wasn't breaking any rules at the time, um, which I think it would be now, but at the time it wasn't.
0: Yes, they have changed the rules, I believe. Well, they've added a rule. There was there was no real rule there before, but I think it was I think for the sport, I think for you guys. Yes, I think for you as the guy that was the one that passed out and had to be carried, it's not I get it, but I don't think people are looking at it like that. I think they're looking at it as simply two brothers that have done everything in the world imaginable in sport together. Have also added this very, very special moment for all of us. You know what I mean? It's like a, just an extra layer to the Brownlee brothers that just makes you both absolutely incredible. What what have you learnt, you know, from that experience, from Rio where you had a phenomenal race um, getting silver, which was also warm, hot, um, but going into Tokyo? We know Tokyo is going to be extreme. Um, what have you learned in terms of heat adaptation, hydration, a combination of those in terms of preparing for Tokyo?
1: Uh, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot. And I think one of the actually the good things that it came out of it is how much you learn. Um, mm. One thing I have learned is I can push my body incredibly far. And a lot of people said, I don't know how you get to that point because I would never be able to get to that point. I'd always give up before I got anywhere near that. So that's a good thing. Uh, the second thing I've learned is I have to be, uh, to, if I'm racing in the heat, I have to be prepared. I can't take any shortcuts. And I actually, if I do prepare in the heat, I can actually race really well in the heat. You know, Rio was a really, really hot day and we raced that completely the way you don't want to race in a hot conditions. We first time up the hill, absolutely smashed it. So you spike your temperature straight away um, and then it's, that's it for the rest of the race. Um, so that's a big thing. I have to be prepared if in the heat and there's different ways of doing that. Before Rio, we actually did quite a lot of sauna work and um, before London, we actually did quite a lot of sauna work. But I think in Tokyo, it would take a little bit more of uh, actual exercising in, in the heat rather than just sitting in the heat. Um, so to do that, I've actually converted my conservatory into a heat chamber. Um, it's got some amazing heaters in it now, and I can get my conservatory. In the back of my house, up to about 40 degrees in training there um, to save the time of going to heat chambers and stuff, and then also top that up by going to hot places. And the other thing I've learned um, is um, I... Um, need to race smarter you know basically when you're in the heat and especially running in the heat your body temperature is just climbing all the time and you want to stop any sharp climbs in your core temperature so any big surges anything like that you want to avoid as much as possible um and tokyo is going to be run going to be won by the the guy who is the most prepared but also the guy who races the smartest because i've learned that and i've learned that the hard way um and the big thing I've learned is, for me, I uh, burn sugar very fast, carbohydrate very, very fast in heat. So I actually need to take on more carbohydrate when I'm racing in the heat. Um, and then the big things I've learned from that, I came back uh, from Cozumel and I went to uh, to work with the British Army actually for a little bit down in the University of Portsmouth, where the British Army did quite a lot of testing because they obviously spend a lot of time in the heat um and to test if there's any kind of long-term damage and there wasn't so that was a really really good and important thing for me to know that it was a it it what happened was uh, it was tough for my body but it wasn't any long-term damage and I'm, I'm over it now so um i'm now uh over it um physically and um, i think my last couple of races in the heat i raced a tokyo test event last year um and i actually coped with the heat quite well i raced very very conservatively um but for mentally for me to get through that race, I think was very, very important. Mm.
0: Have you qualified for the Olympics for Tokyo yet?
1: Uh, was, we're going through the process at the moment, but hopefully we have to wait and see. Um, obviously it's been a strange year, but hopefully, yeah. So that is a big okay. thing because that, if, I, if you do qualify a year out or whatever, it's two years out now, um, not that you but a year out from now, you can spend the whole time preparing for that race. Um mm. I think that's one of the things I actually did wrong for Cozumel is because the Olympics was the main focus of that year and then I had to race in in Edmonton, I didn't really do much preparation going into Cosmel because uh, the Olympics, the focus and the world championship was a bit of an add-on at the end. Um, so I didn't really prepare as well as I could have done for that race.
0: Yeah, I love the fact of what you've learned from from Cozumel though. I mean... It, you know, to turn your conservatory into a heat chamber. Uh, I love all of that, and doing everything you possibly can. You know, leaving every no stone unturned. That kind of mindset of going right. It's not going to happen again, and I'm going to be I'm going to be really well prepared. Because um, I've had a number of your competitors on this on this podcast, and I've asked them similar questions, and I've actually been a little surprised at some of them that haven't maybe taken probably the the biggest variable in Tokyo. Um, into as much consideration as maybe they should. So I think it's it's great to hear that both you and, you know, your brother Ali, where well, you both had these experiences where you've both sort of been running flat out and then suddenly just, you know, passed out on the, on the side. What year was it that Alistair, he fell over in London, like you said earlier, what year was that? Uh, in
1: 2010 and um, I'm embarrassed to say I ran straight past him. <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> well, well...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have carried him, you bum. (laughs) Uh, At the the time. uh, That's That's hilarious. So, that's my first World Series podium. So, it's one of them where you don't actually know. um, I didn't know anything about heat exhaustion, and I was so tired myself. I just wanted the finish line to come.
0: No, no, I don't think anybody's holding that against your buddy. So if you're looking at um, going into Tokyo then, so is the plan, would you guys do another stint at St. Moritz doing the altitude work then come down or what are you thinking then with kind of the heat being the focus?
1: Um, So I think um, the heat obviously is a a massive, massive factor but I also think with triathlon – the uh being goes that's saying but people forget just being the fittest you possibly can on a start line is very very important as well especially in the heat because mm. the fitter you are the easier things are um and i still think altitude is quite important so um we will hope to go to altitude we might have to uh, look at altitude slightly differently rather than go to a camp uh, like we did before with the holding camp is altitude camp and you come down you train um, in a normal environment and then race. I think we might have to do altitude a little bit earlier and then do some heat stuff just before the race. 20th it's is going to depend quite a lot on the calendar because I still feel like I need some racing. But I will spend um, somewhere between four and six weeks at altitude before Tokyo and then also some time in the heat. And that will involve heat chambers, conservatory training at home, um, but also going somewhere hot because I think sometimes the perceptual um, stuff's important, and just being somewhere hot and knowing you're trained in that is very, very important.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're 100% right. It's one thing to be able to do all the heat adaptation, but to be able to be in the environment that you're going to be in um, to really experience it. Has Alistair qualified for London yet?
1: Uh, for for, for, uh, for Tokyo now, Alistair hasn't qualified yet. Um, obviously oh, sorry, London, what am I saying? Tokyo, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not yet. No, he just needs to because he hasn't done a lot of Olympic distance racing in the last couple of years. So um, he's doing a couple of races at the end of this year, and then hopefully some races next year when we know what the calendar's got like. Mm.
0: And, and you've been back racing a little bit
1: now. How's that been? Um, well, interesting. So I actually wrote, I did my five k PB this year after the whole lockdown COVID stuff. I ran a thirteen forty six, and I trained really really well over the COVID period. Then went to Hamburg thinking I was on, that, on the start line with a genuine chance of winning that race. And I just felt absolutely terrible. And I don't know if I had an underlying illness or just lack of racing or maybe I trained a little bit wrong with um, without because, you know, there's t- strange times during the COVID situation of not being able to train with people. But I had a really, really poor race. I had absolutely nothing that race. Um And that kind of got me down a little bit. And then I decided to take a break. And then I'm hoping to be able to, um get some good weeks training and hopefully race in, in daytona at the end of the year
0: ah yes so you you i might come up and watch i'm in two hours south of daytona i want to come up and watch you guys racing if i'm allowed maybe they're not even allowed spectators i don't know
1: have you got a start there already i haven't got a start so maybe this is a, bit of a wild card plug but um um hopefully i'll get a start <laughs> i think you'll get a start somehow
0: (laughs) i think they'll be mad if if they they leave out either yourself or alistair for that race but uh yeah so that race for everybody listening is december 6th i think somewhere around that um so that'd be great to see you there um mate this has been absolutely fantastic there's so many more things i I have on the list here but i've taken so much of your time um if people want to follow you where do they follow you
1: well, on the usual places, obviously, Instagram. I think I'm I'm Johnny Brownley. Try. And then uh, Twitter, uh, Johnny is underscore Brownlee. And then um, also, we've got a fa- uh, Facebook page, the Brownie Brothers. Um, awesome. So, they're the places to find me. So, yeah, thank you very much. Mate,
0: it's been absolutely a blast. And I know you've retold a number of those stories many times, but I, I, I just thoroughly have enjoyed watching you the last 10 years. The ups and the downs, you've always been incredibly entertaining to watch. So, I really, really appreciate you coming on, mate.
1: Well, thank you. I uh, I always love talking about the stories in triathlon. I think it's actually one of the things I've not done very well in my career is go back and uh, actually stop and think. Um, you have enough time to stop and think sometimes, so it's nice to talk about them.
0: Oh, mate. Well, I'd, I'll have you back anytime you want to stop and think and retell a story because I I love going back into the past and you will notice that when you do retire eventually, your stories are going to get bigger and better and you, you're going to be even more amazing than you than you already are. But, mate, I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been absolutely incredible to have Johnny Brownlee on the show. If you want to have the show nights, timestamps, coupon codes, all the links, etc., go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right, thanks, Johnny. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.